Piedmont Healthcare offers you exceptional, hassle-free care closer to home. Piedmont, an official healthcare provider of Atlanta United. Welcome back to the History of Atlanta Soccer, presented by Piedmont. I'm your host, Sandy McAfee, and together with Jason Longshore, we're diving deep into the rich, beautiful, passionate history of soccer in Atlanta, Georgia. In our previous episode, we talked about the launch of the Atlanta Chiefs, the city's first professional soccer club, and the first professional sports team to ever win a championship for Atlanta. And in today's episode, we pick up where the Chiefs left off and how that led to the emergence of a new club under completely different ownership. This team is the Atlanta Apollos. In 1972, the Atlanta Chiefs hosted Dynamo Moscow in a friendly at Atlanta Stadium. It was an interesting opponent to see in the United States during what was the period of the Cold War. There was a lot of booing in the stands. Um, their coach was uh, Lev Yashin, and um, I tell people, you know, he came into our changing room after the game and shook hands. And I mean, you shook hands with him and your hand totally disappeared in here. His hands have to be the biggest hands that I've ever seen. I mean, they were huge. And that's why I guess he was a good goalkeeper is because he could get his hands to lots of balls. But um, I think it was strange for the fans to see Russian team come in to Atlanta. The Chiefs ended up losing three to nothing. And that match would be the last the original Chiefs played as a franchise. On October 25th, Dick Cecil announced that the team disbanded. The organization had lost more than $1.5 million since the start five years earlier. In fact, the Chiefs lost $700,000 during the 67-68 season alone. Said Cecil, quote, we can no longer justify that kind of loss. The growth of local soccer interest has not been reflected in attendance at the Chiefs' games. The NASL still wanted to be in Atlanta. Phil Woosnam, by this time, is the commissioner of the league. He was looking for new investors to support it or to take over. They just couldn't justify the loss that they had. And it was reported at the time that the Braves said they were going to end the, the Chiefs, that they had lost more than $1.5 million. That's a lot of money in those days. It's a lot of money in today's days as well. It was a time where, you know, not that long after it, uh, Bill Bartholomew uh, sold the Braves. Ted Turner became involved in Braves. Not that too long after this. So, Woosnam was now commissioner of the NASL, where he would serve from 1969 to 1982. Upon reflection, he said, quote, We made the mistake of starting at the top. We had high budgets and low income. Now we are reversing that trend. We have lowered the budgets and we can break even with ordinary attendance. We simply started out wrong. And Bartholomew echoed this, saying that to introduce soccer in the U.S. during the summer was like, quote, trying to introduce baseball to England in the winter. Yeah, it was expensive to start this from scratch. And I think when you look at building a club and look, it's a lot more expensive today than it was then. But when you when you really compare and, and take inflation into account, 
this was a huge ask for these ownership groups and, and it comes to be an issue in Atlanta down the road and we'll, we'll get into that as we go into this but Phil Wusenham talked about it I think in two different ways during his experiences when he became the commissioner of the North American Soccer League after the the two competing leagues merged and had the 1968 season and then all but five teams folded. Phil ended up running the league after that and it started initially from the the locker room at Atlanta Stadium. But Phil understood because of his time in Atlanta that you had too many teams that just spent a lot of money and expected people to show up and didn't really do the outreach that was needed. He saw the outreach firsthand in Atlanta and saw how successful it had been. So he wanted to go about it that way. And it's interesting that as the North American Soccer League grew in the 70s and brought LA and had its explosion with the New York Cosmos and LA Aztecs and so many other markets and the Atlanta Chiefs being reborn into the league, they kind of did some of the same mistakes. They were not quite as far along as maybe he thought they were and, and probably he hoped that they were. I think Phil was that evangelist in a lot of ways for soccer and always believed in it maybe before others did and maybe going through what he did in atlanta and what he saw firsthand when the league almost died and somehow and a lot of it is down to phil it was able to be saved and then steadily grow to the point that la came to play for the cosmos maybe he thought that was it and that was the time to then cash in those chips once again and go for it and it didn't work. It did in the long, long term, because ultimately both of those failures, if you want to call them that, led to what we have today. But he went for it maybe before it was quite ready the second time around. The first time he picked up the pieces and kept it alive at a time that no one thought that it could. In an editorial by Jesse Outler called Chiefs vs. the World, he wrote that there is an interest in soccer, just not in ASL soccer. The friendlies against Manchester City and Santos proved that the fan base for soccer existed in Atlanta. Those three exhibition matches pulled in 75,000 fans, which almost equaled regular season turnout for the Chiefs. The problem seemed to be with the NASL brand. It didn't sell to Americans. Quote, Undoctrinated fans were able to discern that they weren't viewing the world's best players, Outler wrote. Here's how he described the problem. Quote, soccer aficionados should not overlook what was perhaps the number one handicap of the NASL. Most of the owners stamped a number two label on their product. Even Dick Cecil will admit that the Braves come before the Chiefs. Some Braves fans wanted the team to drop soccer altogether and spend more money elsewhere, like on the farm system but there were some who weren't ready to let soccer go. At least, not completely. Uh, we felt as a group that a tremendous civic responsibility to keep a major league sport in Atlanta, uh, particularly since Atlanta is becoming an international city and the fact that we have numerous boys playing organized soccer in the city, in the surrounding area. 
On March 29, 1973, Bill Putnam, president of the Omni Group, made the announcement about a new soccer team in Atlanta. The team would be under a new ownership group completely. Uh, the, as I'm sure you're all aware, the past financial history of uh, the soccer franchise in Atlanta does not particularly make it an attractive financial uh, opportunity, but we felt that uh, we should get involved and do our utmost to try and make it a successful franchise, and we're confident that with the support of the community that we can do this. Phil Henley of the Omni Group was named the chief coordinator. He was also the business manager of the organization. Uh, the gentleman that will be operating the club on uh, behalf of the Omni Group will be Mr. Phil Henley, who's sitting at my right, who will be the chief coordinator business manager of the organization, and we will call on the Omni Group uh, expertise in ticket selling, programs, advertising, and promotion for assistance uh, in helping the team get started. Uh, we're looking forward to it. We think it's an exciting challenge, and we're confident that it'll be successful uh, as long as we get the help of the community. The team was announced with a new name, the Atlanta Apollos. Said Putnam, quote, we wanted a name that was forward-sounding, and Apollos fits. The Apollos, the Omni Group, was another professional sports entity in Atlanta. They had the Hawks and the Atlanta Flames under their umbrella. They also had the Omni Coliseum. And they decided to pick up where the, the Chiefs left off. I know I speak for the city of Atlanta and thanking you for keeping this sport alive here. Well, thank you. We, we're going to do our best, and we hope we'll make it successful. A lot of places listed as the Chiefs changing their name to the Apollos. That's not what happened. The Chiefs folded. They went out of business, and the Apollos were a new team. What the league did was, since you still had players who were in Atlanta, had part of the Chiefs, and wanted to stay in Atlanta, contracts were transferred over to the Apollos, but that's on a player-by-player -player basis. The Atlanta Apollos were a completely separate entity than the Atlanta Chiefs. They were owned by a separate organization. There was not any similarity between some personnel that moved over to it. That's right. We will, uh, as I understand, uh, get the rights to the former Chief players from the league. And that's where, what our nucleus will be, and we'll start from there. Does this mean that to people such as Boy Boy Motung and... Uh Others uh, you will also have access to? That's right. We'll have access to all of their, their former players, and uh, our first job is to get organized and getting a general manager coach and uh, start putting this talent together for the coming season. Well, whenever it's change of ownership, it's always things are up in the air, whether you're going to be signed on or the Omni Group, Putnam, uh, the Omni Group bought them and um, moved our home games to uh, Georgia Tech. Grant Field, and now we've gone from grass to AstroTurf. So, believe it or not, there's a different way of running on AstroTurf than there is on grass. So, uh, but like I said, you wanted to play soccer, and if they wanted you on the team, you'd happily go play. Ken Bracewell was named head coach of the Apollos. It wasn't a big transition for me because it was my first year, right. so I wasn't. I was just a trainer, training player with the Chiefs, but. Um, you know, I think the, back then, um, coaching was a lot like parenting, and you coached the team the way you were coached. And in, and in this case, Ken Bracewell, was, he was a hard man. 
And so he he pulled players in that were diggers and and tight markers. Uh, fitness was you know very important. So um, yeah, there was a change there in style. And Bracewell was able to keep several players from the Chiefs. Motong and Mwale signed on, as did Dave Metchik, Paul Child, Mick Hoban, goalkeepers John Forrest and Manfred Kammerer. Jeff Solom, a star at Emory University, signed an amateur contract. Um, there was a strong contingent of players that were carried over. Right. Coach changed. Vic Rouse uh, was not kept on, and they, um, they hired Ken Bracewell as the coach, player coach. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an eclectic group. We had um, a couple Brazilians, um, quite a few Brits, um, some Americans, um, always a Scotsman. Learning from the mistakes of its predecessor, the Apollos made some changes. The first was the venue. The Apollos played at Georgia Tech. They played at Grant Field rather than playing at Atlanta Stadium, which was was under the Chiefs, the Chiefs and the Braves' purview. So a lot of differences. Um, I don't think the Apollos and the Omni organization at the time were really big enough to take this on. The Apollos scheduled 11 games on Friday nights and two international exhibition matches. One of the real points for the Omni group, for the Hawks, for the, the Flames to get involved in soccer was that there was starting to be some talk about an indoor variant of the game being played in arenas. This was something that they were obviously owning an arena, very excited about and wanted to see grow. So the Apollos were involved in some of the first exhibitions of indoor soccer that were ever played in this time frame. You had had games played indoors in decades before this. I know New York had done it, but trying to create a blueprint for what a league could be, what a, a, a rule book could be for indoor soccer. The Apollos tried to do that and they played multiple games during this time frame, during the season. Uh, drew pretty well, actually. It, it was definitely something that had some interest and had some potential success. But again, you just didn't have enough of that for them to keep going and, and try to take it to another level. The NASL wasn't at a position either where they were ready to jump with both feet into the indoor game. The Apollos made their NASL debut at home against Montreal, winning 3-2 at Grant Field. Rain and tornadoes threatened the area that day, and still over 7,348 people braved the weather to watch the match. The Apollos posted a 3-7-9 record in 1973, which isn't great. The franchise then disbanded, said John Wilcox, president of the Omni Group, quote, I simply don't have enough time or enough smart to operate a soccer team at this time. But finance is not the reason we're getting out. We just don't have the time to operate it as it should be. I think the name change probably confused people as well. It, it probably didn't result in any kind of growth. It, it probably lost some people along the way. Uh, the team also wasn't as good. And that's the other element of it. When you go back to one of the magic things about the Chiefs and their success, the teams were good. The, the product was good. The 1972 product wasn't quite as good. You had players who were getting older. You had players who 
maybe the chemistry wasn't as good as it used to be. You had friction between the coaching staff and players. The Apollos didn't get back to that level of a product that the Chiefs successful teams did. So it was a one-year experiment and the Omni Group decided at the end of 1973 that they couldn't continue it. The Apollos would play just one season, the one-hit wonder of Atlanta soccer. Even though the Apollos quickly folded, their existence showed enthusiasm for the game. The catchphrase for the Apollos was, soccer is alive and kicking in Atlanta. It's interesting that the league nationally was slowly starting to turn the corner at this point. And you were still two years away from Pelé coming to play for the Cosmos, but you had some other success stories. Philadelphia joined the league and had done well. Uh, Dallas was doing really well in 1973 with Kyle Rote Jr., who was the first real American star. And that was something that Atlanta teams needed. They needed Americans that players and kids could identify with. Kyle Rote Jr. played in college at the University of the South at Suwannee, not that far from here. So it was starting to turn the corner nationally, but the Braves had basically tapped out the Hawks and Flames just didn't have the foresight, didn't have the emotional connection either like the Chiefs did and they went as long as they did. It just wasn't going to work. They ultimately couldn't keep it going into that golden era of the North American Soccer League. The owners in the mid to late 70s, early 80s, they were all about um, making it more than just soccer. They went, they transitioned from getting the best players they could because the average fan in the audience didn't know the difference in me and Rodney Marsh. Um, they, you know, we had different numbers, but the, the subtleties of the game, you know, everybody's a professional, everybody can head the ball, kick the ball, but the stuff that the top guys can do, it was too subtle for the, the ticket owner, ticket, average ticket fan. To, so they're thinking, we're paying all this money, and yeah, he's a good player, but the entertainment value is not equating to it. So they started doing more, um, more things in the stadium and around the team. So there was, there was all that going on. Um, and a lot of celebrities uh, played in Boston and um, Playboy Bunnies were all out there kicking balls into the stands and stuff. And um, Derek Sanderson, Bobby Orr, and Phil Esposito kicked out the first ball. They were opening a bar in Boston called Legends. So that's where the post-game party was. And they were all behind the bar pulling beers. And I mean, there's always stuff like that. Peter Frampton was involved, um, Elton John with, uh, with LA and um, always doing stuff so that they were trying to make it. And there's a book called Rock and Roll Soccer or something like that. And I think that speaks to some of the um, entertainment or off the field entertainment that was going on. Something else started happening around this time. Said Kim Bracewell, quote, I just can't believe the difference in the last few years. You can go to a high school field now and see the results of training players from their grade school days. And the fans, they used to clap if a ball was booted 50 yards and came down and hit a chap on the head. Now, the fans know and appreciate some of the finer points. Success started to feel a little closer. ¶¶ 
Next up on the history of Atlanta soccer, the Atlanta Chiefs, part two. You're listening to the History of Atlanta Soccer, an Atlanta United production hosted and produced by Jason Longshore and me, Sandy McAfee. This episode was edited by Diego Pinzon. Special thanks to Dee Turner, the University of Georgia Archives, the City of Atlanta, and the New Encyclopedia of Georgia. Additional thanks to Joe Freihofer, Ravi Moody, Holly Vera, Monique Rojas, Tiffany Hart, and the Atlanta History Center for their help and support on this episode. To learn more, visit atlantaunited.com slash podcast. <laughs>